Good morning, church. Good morning. Yeah, this side's definitely, you know, you know, I say in Bible class how this side's generally got more. Well, this, this side wins in the worship service today. Just saying. Over the course of the past three lessons, we have talked about how the language of modern-day Ashdod, or modern-day America, if you will, is like a totally foreign language when compared to the language of God, which we see in his word, the Bible. For example, as we've covered, what God calls and defines and or requires in order for one to be an elder or pastor, the world calls and defines as being a minister or a preacher with no qualms or qualifications about calling these preachers who meet none of the biblical qualifications for pastor, pastor. We have seen how the language of the Bible differs when it comes to love. What God defines as love, that is caring enough to correct those whose sin will carry them to hell if they are not turned around. Our world today instead refers to as hate, arrogance, intolerance, or judgmentalism. We have seen that what God rejects and refers to as vain worship in the language of modern day America refers to worship that is acceptable to them is just relabeled as contemporary worship. And finally, we saw that what God refers to as murder or killing or the shedding of innocent blood, the world around us today refers to in one form as abortion. Even going so far as to insist in their biblical ignorance that they have the right to kill or murder the innocent and defenseless by simply relabeling, relabeling such atrocities as abortion rights. Modern day American English is really like using a foreign language to the children of the living God and their children, or at least it should be. It should be if we are going to protect our heavenly heritage Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 23 through 27. It should be if we are going to one day return to our heavenly homeland, Philippians 3, 17 through 21, because we have protected that heavenly heritage, including the language of God. And here's why, it, you know, you cannot, you are not able to truly communicate something to somebody if you don't understand the language. We are not able to converse in or communicate with the language of another. If, if we're not able to, then, then we, we're going to get nothing but mixed up and messed up and, and in some cases, maliciously fatal messages. Let me, let me give you an example. I know a, a good brother over in Strasbourg, France, who's a gospel preacher over there, and his name is Dan Perot, and he and his wife Tammy and knew many years ago back in New England. Well, I get his newsletter every so often. And when Dan and Tammy found out, uh, as they listened to the, the news about Ukraine, 
they opened up their home in France and they got a hold of the church in Ukraine and said, hey, if you've got anybody that's fleeing the country over there that needs a place to stay, our home is open. Okay? So eventually, this young lady, well, she's in her 40s, I guess, showed up at their door. And I'm going to read to you from the newsletter that he recently sent out. It says, eventually a lady showed up at our door needing a place to stay. Her name was Evgenia. At least it sounds like that in French and English. <laughs> if you've read some of those names in the news, you know what he's talking about, right? She is from the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine, the most affected by the war. Interacting with Evgenia was not easy. She didn't speak French or English or Spanish. And we don't speak Russian. You should have seen us trying to communicate through translating apps on our phones. <laughs> yeah. By the way, he writes, watch out if you ever use one of those apps. They often convey the opposite of what you are trying to say and add things you didn't say. I often had to say, no, 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 I didn't say that. I don't know how the app came up with these bad words. My hope, he says, was to evangelize Evgenia, who is not a member of the church, but was a contact of the church in Ukraine. I quickly understood that it was going to be very, very difficult to do so without the ability to communicate properly, especially in subtleties. It is often necessary to go into subtleties to explain the differences of doctrine between the evangelicals and the Church of Christ. She came to church with us, of course, when she was there. I had to translate my sermon in written forms in Russian for her. I hope she got the right message. I called many officials to find out what she had to do and printed the forms for her and prepared them with translations. Since the Russian alphabet is different, even putting names on the forms was a challenge. Evgenia has now moved to another place closer to people who speak her language. We really hope she will remember that during her crisis the Lord's Church was there for her and that someday it will play in her conversion in true reconciliation with Christ. I read that to you to emphasize in modern day illustration how incredibly difficult it is, if not outright impossible, to truly and accurately communicate with someone if you don't know or understand the language they are using. And we say, well, our Bibles are written in English. Yeah, they are. But boy, some of those words, as we've seen, are different. Some of the phraseology from the way the world sees it is, is totally different. Carrying that a step further, it is incredibly difficult, if not outright impossible, to first convert and then keep someone faithful to Christ if they are not constantly taught, do not continually speak, or do not cons consummately understand the divinely inspired and eternally settled in heaven language of God in his word. That's the reason for Nehemiah 13, for the warnings of Nehemiah 13, the warnings of the epistle of 1 Peter, which we've already talked about, and this little sermon mini-series that's getting bigger by the week. Today's phrase is one which the world will, once again, 
hurl at you with the velocity and ferocity of a howitzer if you are truly following in the footsteps of Jesus. And we're going to talk about it tonight as well, so just giving you a little heads up, both, both today and uh, both sermons today. Today's phrase is a word which should, which should, according to the word of God, be meant for good and not evil. But it is a phrase which in the language and the hearts and the minds of modern day America has once again come to mean or imply something evil and represent evils such as hate and intolerance and judgmentalism. Because once again, as we've already covered in Isaiah 5, 20 through 25, the world calls good things evil and evil things good. This is a term which is not specifically stated exactly in God's word, but it can be clearly seen in evidence in God's word throughout the words and the actions and the instructions of our Lord and Savior and his faithful disciples. Throughout the New Testament, the, this truth is there, even though the specific term will not be found in the scriptures. What is the term? The term is narrow-minded. Narrow-minded. According to the world's and Merriam-Webster's definition, the term narrow-minded means this. Not willing to accept the opinions, beliefs, behaviors, etc that are unusual or different from one's own. Not willing to accept the opinions, beliefs, behaviors, etc., that are unusual or different from one's own. Okay? That's Webster's and the world's definition. However, because we are children of the living God, I would prefer to take that definition, take it apart, and define it in terms of the language and word of God first, and then see how or even if Merriam-Webster's and the world's definition of narrow-minded fits into, in any way, God's definition. So, I'm gonna ask you, turn to me to the book of Colossians, chapter three. Let's begin with the second word of that phrase, narrow-minded, mind-minded. We'll begin with that second word. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, talking to those who have been raised up. That raised up that he's talking about is the raised up with Christ after we have been baptized, as he has talked about in Colossians chapter 2. Paul writes to the Church of Christ in first century Colossae, chapter 3 and verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind. Set, focus, lock in your mind <clears throat> on things above, not on things on earth. It is so important that we do this, that we have our mind set on things above 
that we are minded, that we are heaven-minded, that our mind is, is on those things. It is so important that even the Apostle Peter, one of the inner circles, inner circle of, of Christ's disciples, was given one of the sharpest rebukes in the entire New Testament because he had not set his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Matthew 16 and verse 23, we are familiar with, wherein the Lord, quote, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. Wow, and we'll come back to that later. An offense to Jesus? We talk about things being offensive. Uh, Jesus says, you're an offense to me. Why? For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Peter, he says, Satan, you're an offense to me because your mind is not set on the things of God, but on the things of men. That's what it means to be minded. Which brings us to the other word in the phrase narrow-minded, which is, of course, narrow, which, of course, logically, takes us to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Please turn there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, said this. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. That is the narrow way to heaven. What is it say in Colossians 3? Set your mind on things above. How do you do that? You do that by keeping your mind set on the narrow way that leads there. That is narrow-minded. So when we put together the biblical instruction regarding narrow and where our minds are to be, and then seeing if perhaps the world's definition can kind of be slid in there because it has something in common with the biblical definition, I think that we as Christians can very, very safely define the term narrow-minded as having our mind so completely set on things above, including the narrow gate and difficult way which leads to heaven above, that we absolutely will not accept any opinion, belief, behavior, etc., that is unscriptural or in any way different from what God said in his word, period. You will notice that we took the opinion, belief, and behavior out of Merriam-Webster because it's true. We need to have our minds so set on the narrow way that we're not going to accept it when somebody comes up and says, well, baptism hasn't got nothing to do, it hasn't got anything to do with salvation. We're not going to accept that because our mind is, is we are narrow-minded. <laughs> Our mind is set on the narrow way, and the narrow way does include baptism, along with a whole lot of other stuff. Now, as I say that, I want to ask you, has anyone ever accused you of being narrow-minded or a term like that simply because 
you believe that everything God said is true. Simply because you will not accept any opinion, belief, behavior that runs contrary to what God said. Has anybody, don't raise your hand, just think about it, let me say it again. Has anybody ever called you narrow-minded because your mindset is so locked in to the things above and the narrow way that gets to the things above that you won't accept anything contradictory to that? You know what that is if they did? That is just about the highest God-glorifying compliment that anybody can possibly give you. That's what that is. That is just about the greatest God-glorifying compliment that anybody can possibly give you, and we had ought to thank others for paying us that compliment every time that our words, our actions, and our behaviors cause somebody to conclude that our mind is on the straight and narrow and we're not budging from it. What, what a privilege. You know, sometimes somebody say, say, you say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> you know how the world calls bad things good, good things bad, right? I say, narrow-minded is an awesome term. When we understand it in light of the biblical definition. Now, <laughs> you know why it's such a compliment? Because we understand what it means according to the word of God. Because when somebody says that, this is what it means. It means you are shining the light, that you are following in the footsteps of Jesus, that you are shining the light so strongly that they realize you're different and you're not going to budge or compromise anything that God said. That you are shining the light of God's word to those lost in darkness all around you and they're seeing it, they're recognizing it. Whether they are willing to admit it or not or whether they are willing to accept it or not, they are seeing it. John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. You know why it's such a high compliment first and foremost? Because of what God calls it. You know what God calls such narrow-mindedness, such keeping our mind on the straight and narrow path and setting our mind on, on things above and the path that gets there and, and locked into that so that we're not gonna we're not gonna allow anything else to get in the way or come in and, and pollute our, our mindset on, on the things of God. You know what God calls that? Love for him. Faithfulness to him. And obedience to him. In other words, you're following in the very footsteps of Jesus. We sing a song, right, about following in the footsteps of Jesus, okay? Well, let me tell you this. I dare say, based on that biblical definition, that there has never been another being that has walked this guilty sod who was as narrow-minded as the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I realize that God was here originally, but Christ and God are one. Nobody has ever walked the planet who is more narrow-minded according to that definition than Jesus Christ himself. So when they accuse you of that, they're telling you you like Jesus. Now as I say that, because the word narrow-minded has such a negative connotation in, in the language of, of Ashdod, some might struggle with that when I say Jesus was narrow-minded. Maybe even a Christian or two. 
And, and the reason for that is because modern day man has gone to such great lengths to recreate Jesus, to recreate God over in their own minds into some non-confrontational, politically correct, soft on sin, sexually immoral, accepting, superficial instead of sacrificial savior. That's not the picture we see in scripture. The picture we see in scripture of the, the biblical Jesus is more narrow-minded than any other being that ever walked the earth with the exception of God in the flesh way back when, or God way back when, sorry. I want to take a look this morning at how narrow-minded Jesus was according to that definition. Because Jesus made it clear throughout that that is exactly who he is and what he is. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. How narrow-minded was Jesus? <laughs> More narrow-minded than you or I'll ever be. But we're trying. We're familiar with the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, so I'm only going to read <clears throat> verses 4, 7, and 10, but let me begin with verse 4. <clears throat> Jesus answered Satan and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Wait, 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 wait. Only by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? What about human wisdom, Jesus? What about the self-help books, Jesus? What about this person that is absolutely convinced that their feelings are right, that's to say that, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If, if you're saying that's how man, that's pretty intolerant, Jesus. Yep. That's pretty narrow-minded. Are you saying that's the only way, Jesus? Yep. Uh-huh. Yep. When the devil later on sought to twist and pervert the scriptures to his own advantage, Jesus would have none of it. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus. That's pretty narrow-minded. I mean, the devil's got an opinion. Isn't he welcome to his opinion on the way the scriptures should be used? No, he's not. Why? Because he's wrong. Well, Jesus, that, that's, that's pretty intolerant of, of, of his opinion. That, that's pretty narrow-minded. Um, no, that's just right. That's just honest. That's just true. Because the way the devil had tried to use that text was not in line with the original meaning or content of what God had said. And, and finally, in, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10, after the third temptation, Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. You only? Only? Only is a pretty exclusive word, isn't it? Only? That means there's no other. Yep, that's exactly what it means. Jesus, are you really saying? Yep, that's exactly what he's saying. Uh-huh. But, 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 but what? If, no, it's the only way. That's pretty exclusive. It's pretty narrow-minded. And, and if we were to read through the entire Sermon on the Mount, we would see this come up again and again and again. This is something that was not lost on the masses at large as we see in the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 9. Jesus 
had been very clear, very concise, very consistent, and very uncompromising throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had not been wishy-washy. He had not been all over the place. He had not been seeking to give people what they wanted to hear most, mixed in with a little bit of what they needed to hear from God. That's not what he did. Jesus taught without compromise, without condition, without contradiction, and without hesitation. And Jesus did so with conviction. He did it with compassion, absolutely. Jesus did it exactly. He had not been blown about by every whim and wish and wind of doctrine around him. He told it like it was, straight up, exclusively, in accordance with the instructions of God. And he did it in the words and language of God. But Sermon on the Mount is not the only place. It isn't just something Jesus did on occasion. Jesus was the epitome of this definition of narrow-mindedness. Throughout the entire earthly ministry and existence of Jesus, he was like that. Let, let me give you some examples, and we're not going to turn to them because we could spend weeks doing this, but let me just give you this. Jesus was extremely narrow-minded when it came to, number one, himself. Jesus referred to himself as the Christ, the Son of Man, the resurrection, and the life, as well as the way, the truth, and the life. Listen, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me, that's about as exclusive as it gets, isn't it? That's about as narrow-minded as it gets. Jesus said, I'm it. Well, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus, what about all these other religious leaders? Nope. Well, what about all these religious leaders that have come along since? Nope. Well, what about this person who's feeding? Nope. Jesus said, I'm it. One, exclusive, narrow-minded, and he was not going to accept any opinion, belief, or behavior that differed from what God had said. He just wasn't. Why? Because his mind was on heaven. And his mind was on the path there, and his mind was on the straight and narrow. Jesus was narrow-minded. Jesus was very narrow-minded when it comes to, number two, who was going to enter the kingdom. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he, only him who does the will of my Father. And only? He who does the will of my Father in heaven is the only one? He didn't use the word only there, I did. They're going to say, well, we did all these, these wonderful things. We did this. Nope. Only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Yeah, but we, no. One way. And if you didn't do it that way, I'm going to have to say, depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus was very clear and concise about who was going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said in John 3, verses 3 and 5, that unless you're born again of the water and the spirit, you ain't going. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. My great-great-grandfather and great-grandfather and grandfather and this one and that one and back 15 generations all said that because, you know, this person way back then had this feeling that they were saved and we've all had it ever since that we're okay. So, so you know, we don't have to be born. Jesus, nope. I didn't get you there. 
you must be born again of the water and the Spirit. That's it. Well, Jesus, talk about, talk about just exclusive. Yeah, uh-huh. Jesus was very narrow-minded and exclusive when it came to marriage. One man, one woman, for life, except for the case of death or adultery. Matthew 19, 3 through 12. This despite all the court rulings, the corrupt reasonings, or the cultural capitulations of today. Jesus said that's it, that's how he defined it. Jesus was very narrow-minded when it came to authority. <laughs> Remember the Sermon on the Mount was talking about? How many times in the Sermon on the Mount did Jesus say, you've been taught this, but I say to you, right? Who did he think he was? They've been taught this way for, for, for years. Who's this Jesus think he is to come in there and say, yeah, well, that's what they say, but I say this. Who did he think he was? Let me tell you something. Jesus didn't think he was anybody. Jesus knew who he was. He was the way, the truth, the life, the son of God. That's who he was, and he knew that. Do we? Because if we do, we are not going to take any of our opinions, beliefs, or behaviors that run contrary to his will because he is the son of God and try to impact them or interject them into following him. Jesus was extremely narrow-minded when it came to the word of God. Matthew 4, 4, as we've read in John 17 and verse 17. He said in John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. God's word is truth. That's right. Well, what about, no. Well, what about, no. Well, what about, no. Very narrow-minded. God's word is truth. That's it. There's no room for anything else. And, you know, people today, you can't pick and choose what you want to believe. From, from liberal pastors, quote unquote, to the lesbian preachers that litter today's lost religious landscape. I just, I got a, an article last night, <clears throat> my emails, I don't even know how I got subscribed to this guy, but <laughs> um, there's, there's a gentleman there and he's got some pretty interesting points. and. and generally, and one of the points that he made just last night in, in the little newsletter I got was, there was recently uh, a survey that was done by an Arizona university, and at the direction of George Barna, Barna surveys, you're all familiar with Barna, right? And one of these surveys, said that in a poll that was taken of and again, they're using the worldly definition of pastors. They're talking about preachers, okay? Not, not elders the way God does. But in this survey of pastors, are you ready for this? Only 37% have a Christian worldview. What that means is only 37% believe that in six days God created the earth and, and Believe what the Bible says generally. 37%. That means that 63% of the preachers in the, in the religious world out there today, out of this survey, 63%, nearly two-thirds of them, don't believe the Bible. 
And it's because of that lack of narrow-mindedness, that lack of narrow-mindedness right there, that the religious world is in the mess they're in. Jesus was very narrow-minded. He said God's word was truth. And that man would not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. Jesus was also, I don't even know what number we're on. I have bullets on my notes. Jesus was extremely narrow-minded when it came to worship. Boy, there's one the world ain't. Jesus was very narrow-minded when it comes to worship. He said, worship must be of God and God alone. Luke 4, verses 5 through 8. He said it must be done in spirit and truth. That is, according to the word and will of God himself. If worship is not of God only, if it is not in spirit and truth, then God defined it as vain and unacceptable to him. Mark 7, 5 through 13. Wait a minute, Jesus. I had really good intentions. In spirit and truth. Or in vain. Well, 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 well I know this, this is the religious guy, the, the, the pastor that, that led it, and I know he, he's a really good guy. It's either in spirit and truth, according to the word of God, or Jesus said it's in vain. Now, Jesus, how can you be so exclusive? How can you say that only those that worship in spirit and truth are going? Because he's the son of God, and he knows. And he has how much authority? All. So he has a right to say that. But you want to talk about narrow-minded. Oh, I do. <laughs> In Jesus Christ, the narrow-minded Messiah, which is the title of today's two lessons, was just as consistent throughout in his narrow-mindedness, whether it came to things like priorities, Matthew chapter 6, or the sacrifices it takes to be a disciple, Luke 9, 57 through 62, and Matthew 10, 37 through 39 everything else he ever lived Jesus Christ knew that things in God's word are non-negotiable non-negotiable they're not optional they're not flexible they're not compromisable they are not open to the whims and wishes and beliefs and opinions of man period period it's underlined right there on the slide you see Jesus knew what a mess we were in. Jesus knew that God disciplines us for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 10, and 11. Jesus knew that. That's why... He was so narrow-minded. And so today, despite the humanly enhanced, completely reimagined situation ethics accepting and pop culture picture of the continually compromising savior, despite that, the Christ of the Bible did not come to earth, hear me and hear it in the right context, the Son of God did not come to earth to make friends. He came to make disciples.
That's what the scripture says. He came to make disciples. He did not come to earth to make friends by compromising, agreeing with, or accepting other people's opinions, beliefs, and behaviors that were in opposition to the word of God. He thought what he came for. Not at all. As Brother Charles Hodge used to say, or used to write so wonderfully, Jesus didn't come to make men happy. He came to make men holy. He didn't come to be nice. He didn't come to be open-minded. He didn't come to be non-confrontational so that people would like him and want to be his friend. In fact, if you ever think about that for a minute, I don't mean to offend anybody who's saying that. It's just true. It's just true. In fact, Jesus' definition of his friends Remember, his definition of friends is a whole lot different than their definition. Because people have to say, well, if you were going to be my friend, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be this way. And you're too narrow. That's not Jesus' definition of friends. Jesus gave us his very specific definition of friends in the language of God when he said in John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. In other words, because he taught the word of God, he said, you're my friends as long as you are narrow-minded when it comes to the word of God. As long as you follow my commandments, then you're my friends. Again, John 15 and verse 14. Well, Jesus, that is so narrow-minded. Uh-huh. That is so exclusive. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's right. Sure is. See, 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15 tells us that Jesus came to save sinners. And this is what it comes down to. This is what it all comes down to. Because he was God in the flesh, and because he had all of the godly wisdom, the infinite amount of godly wisdom, Jesus knew that the only way to save sinners, the only way to save, can I say that again? The only way to save sinners was to identify and confront their sins in such a strong and uncompromising manner as to try to make them see their need to respond and repent and have those sins forgiven so that they could rise up to walk in newness of life in a holier way following exactly what God said. That's why he came. He didn't come to make friends. He came to make disciples. He came to make Christians. He came to make sinners holy. And you don't make sinners holy by agreeing with every opinion, belief, and behavior that they have when they speak a foreign language. You make sinners holy by giving them the unadulterated, uncorrupted, pure word of the living God, by setting your mind on things above and keeping your mind on the, on the straight and narrow path, the, the narrow way, the narrow path, and by sharing that with them. That's how you get to heaven. That's how come Jesus went back to heaven. That's, why come, that's how come Jesus did everything he did. Listen, it would have done Jesus no good whatsoever to come to earth, to go to the cross, to deal with the sins that had separated sinners from God just so they could go right back and sink right into them again. What's the point? Think about that. Why did Jesus teach all he did, and why was he so narrow-minded? Because if he came and died on a cross to redeem people, and they didn't realize that their sins were wrong, they didn't realize that their opinions, beliefs, and behaviors, if they ran contrary to the word of God, were what separated them from God, and they went right back into them. Why Jesus threw all that? And so, 
realizing all that was at stake, Jesus came to earth. He came on strong. And he communicated only, brethren, only the one exclusive truth that led up the narrow way, the one narrow way, all the way to heaven above. And he refused to accept anything that ran contrary to it. He did not accept it for even a moment. Jesus knew that the one and only thing, whether they liked it or not, or whether they, they wanted to hear it or not, the one and only thing that could set people free from the horrors of hell where they were headed was the truth of the word of the message of God, period. The language of God. And Jesus would give that to them at all cost himself and even in spite of themselves at time, John 8, 31 through 47. Jesus knew that the narrow way which leads to salvation required, required, hello, required, that one be narrow-minded. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. He also knew that the broad way which leads to destruction, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, was reserved for the many broad-minded people, broad-minded being opposite of narrow-minded by our definition, broad-minded people who would accept the many different opinions, beliefs, and behaviors that ran contrary to what God said. His hand-picked apostles soon followed Peter on the day of Pentecost stood up and told those people outright, boldly and firmly, you crucified him with the help of all us men. You did it. And you want to talk about, you want to talk about narrow-minded? You want to talk about exclusive? You did it. You, with the help of lawless men, put him to death. And God raised him up. When they figured out, well, we've got to do something. What have we done? Peter, what are we going to do? He didn't say, well, you just got to have a whole lot of faith. You, know? you just got to believe. He didn't say, well, you've got, you got to say this prayer. That, that'll save you. No, he didn't say that. He said, let every one of you repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that promises to you and all your children, to all who are far off, to all whom the Lord our God will call. Period. It's in the book. Well, that's not the way we've always done I don't care. That's the way it's done. Well, that's not what, it doesn't matter. Well, Peter, you're just narrow-minded. Yep. How'd you get so narrow-minded, Peter? Following the Lord Jesus, the most narrow-minded being that ever walked the planet. Yep, that's how I did it. Neither the old law, their good works, the best of intentions, their attendance on Pentecost, hours of prayer, or their most ardent belief on earth was going to get their sins forgiven, their souls saved, and then added to the kingdom. There was one way, it was exclusive, and the narrow-minded Apostle Peter told them what it was. This morning, if you were here, and you've never obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That opportunity is going to be yours in just a moment. I will tell you, before you do that, that when you do, God's going to add you to the church. You know what the church is? You know what the church needs to be, must be, ought to be? The most narrow-minded group of people on the planet. Because we're following Jesus Christ. And he was. So you're going to become part of a very narrow-minded group. Yep. Scripture only. Yep. Because there's one way to heaven. Maybe you're here this morning and you in some way need the prayers of the church because 
you haven't had that conviction and that commitment that you ought to have, or maybe there's something else on your heart that you're struggling with, we'd be glad to help with the prayers of the church. But I want to tell you right now, just real quick, I'm a very narrow-minded person. And I'm so glad. And I intend to be more narrow-minded tomorrow than I was today. And I intend to be more narrow-minded a week from now than I am tomorrow. You know why? Because I'm following Jesus. And that's what you need. If you have a need, please come to the front as we stand and sing.